Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. This is your host, Nathaniel Parrish. Thanks for joining us for the Modern Mexico Podcast. Over the last 10 years, I've written articles and reports and done fieldwork all over Mexico. I've spoken to the powerful people at the center of the decision-making process and I've also talked to residents and activists who are living on the periphery of Mexico's globalized economy. On upcoming episodes, we'll talk to a diverse group of Mexico watchers. We'll discuss the paradoxes and the potential of the U.S.'s most important trading partner. In today's episode, we're speaking to Benjamin Smith, a historian and author of a new book called The Dope, the real history of the Mexican drug trade. Over the last 50 years, the rhetoric of war has often defined the U.S.-led effort to fight substance abuse and drug trafficking groups, both domestically and abroad. The so-called war on drugs has played a central role in U.S.-Latin America relations, and in particular, The fight against drug trafficking organizations has often been right at the center of the bilateral U.S.-Mexico relationship. So, just to mention a few names, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump are all presidents who have modeled themselves as anti-drug warriors. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. It is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. One of the most critical duties that we faced upon taking office was controlling the influx of illegal drugs into this country. The drug trade also enriches our enemies and brings crime and violence to our streets. When Mexico sends its people, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime. In today's episode, we're speaking to Mexico historian Benjamin Smith, about his new book, The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. It's great to be here, Nate. All right, the first thing I want to ask you about is, I know that a lot of recent books, films, and TV series have focused on the rise and fall of one particular cartel kingpin. And I'm wondering, why was it so important to you to zoom out and do a history of the drug trade rather than a book focused on just one major player in the drug game? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, as I found out, uh, books about major players in the drug game uh, perhaps sell much better. But you're absolutely right. Um, There's, uh, you know, there's a kind of obsession with the cartel kingpin from kind of films like Sicario to kind of non-fiction, think the kind of endless bios of El Chapo, um, or even the kind of what we might call semi-fiction, like Don Winslow's Border Trilogy. Um, And we also have this obsession in the press with the big kingpin. So, uh, for example, think of the circus that surrounded Chapo and his various escapes, uh, his interviews and his trial, or the new growing fascination with the head of the Cartel Jalisco, uh, El Mencho. Uh, Now, this is a fascination that that I think you and I know is not only in the United States, uh, it's not only in Mexico, it's kind of global. It's about the only thing that the UK audience knows about Mexico is El Chapo. Um, Now, the problem with this is, in my opinion, this obsession with kingpins is just drug war propaganda, right? 
And the logic goes like this. Kingpins run cartels, and cartels are these kind of vertically integrated organizations where everyone just does the orders of the kingpin. So the idea being, if you take out the kingpin, you destabilize the cartel, you destabilize the cartel, and you disrupt the drug market, right? So that's the logic of this kind of drug war propaganda. And it kind of reached its epitome with the DEA's own kingpin strategy, which was an invoked strategy that they came up with post Pablo Escobar to take out the major capos. And it was adopted by, in Mexico, it was adopted by Felipe Calderón. And then when Chapo escaped prison, it was also forced on Peña Nieto by the DEA. Uh, So during, for example, Peña Nieto's presidency, about 120 kingpins were arrested including Chapo, uh, including all the leaders of the Zetas, like the Trevino uh, Morales brothers. Um, But during this period, despite the fact that kingpins were arrested, cartels were disrupted, murders went up, the price of drugs in the US went down, it was cheaper to get high than ever before, and the amount of overdoses in the US went up. It was more dangerous to get high than ever before. So why was this? Well, basically, because in my opinion, drug warriors are mistaking their own propaganda for analysis. Drug market is not controlled by a single man or a single organization. It's a commercial ecosystem where U.S. demand, uh, which over the last 15 years has been growing and growing, basically shapes supply. Uh, So that's the story really I wanted to tell, not the drug war propaganda of these are these amazing kingpins who have these extraordinary businesses because i think that's as i say it's 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 simple propaganda it's mythology explains nothing uh in my opinion okay very interesting well for me one of the things i most enjoyed about your book was just kind of going through you know chapter by chapter from the 1920s to 30s to 40s and so on and you know learning about learning about new characters from Sinaloa, from Chihuahua, from other states, and, um, you know, kind of getting their entire story in, in just one chapter. And I'm wondering, overall for you, who's the most interesting person that you learned about while writing your book? Uh, yeah, so having said above uh, that it's not all about the big kingpins and we need to strip back the kind of sensationalism around the drug war, um, I also felt that it was too important a story and too important a subject to leave to kind of dry academic analysis uh, of political scientists with their kind of impenetrable regression analyses and security wonks with their kind of ivory tower speculations. So as a result, in my book, The Dope, I did attempt to balance discussion um, of this kind of market ecosystem, the supply and demand of drugs, with individual narratives of traffickers and politicians uh, and cops. Now, as I realised, this was a bit of a tightrope to walk, uh, and there was always a risk of sensationalising um, these kind of individuals, or, on the, on the other hand, burying people in facts. Um, and I probably managed to do both in the book. Anyway, I suppose what character I'm most interested in, I suppose that has to be... Um, Uh, a man called Eduardo Lalo Fernandez who first turns up about maybe about a quarter of the way through the book Um, and he's he comes from 
the traditional opium poppy growing village um, of Sinaloa, a place called Badiraguato. He's related to some really big political players from around there. Uh, his uncle and his dad were former revolutionaries, so he's got a fairly impressive heritage. And just when he comes of age, Badiraguato is producing loads and loads of opium poppies um, for uh, a US market uh, in the 1940s that has been cut off from its usual European suppliers of heroin. So what Lalo Fernandez does is basically create the first um, kind of black market, black tar heroin in a laboratory in Sinaloa. And he does this, I'm pretty sure, with the help of some fairly uh, well-to-do pharmacists um, who are really from the elite uh, of, of Sinaloa. So here's a guy who effectively creates the first Mexican-made uh, heroin. And he goes on to become the the key link man between Mexico's drug traffickers um, and the state, really for the next for the next 30 years or so. He becomes the strongman of a place called Tierra Blanca, which is a suburb to the north of, well, I say suburbs, really a, a ghetto to the north of um, uh, the city of Culiacan, where the vast majority of the drug traffickers live, where most of the laboratories that are, that are, that are producing black tar heroin are located. And he becomes the effective leader um, of, this, um, of this barrio. Uh, and he becomes the broker between the narcos and the state, and he basically makes sure that the traffickers don't kill too many people, uh, but they also cough up a bit of their money uh, to uh, the government administration. And I think he's a kind of fascinating figure because he's the he's the epitome of the kind of non-violent drug trafficker, the businessman. Um, he dies peacefully in his sleep. He never sees the inside of a prison. Um, and uh, according to the most the people he um, he kind of lived around and lived near. Um, he spent quite a lot of his his money and time, particularly his wife, spent quite a lot of her money and her her time, effectively, uh, yeah, helping the people of Culiacan, particularly the people of Tierra Blanca. So he's one of the first drug traffickers who realizes that in order to escape the authorities, you need the support of the people. Uh, among who you live, uh, so his wife would give out, would send people to hospital, would 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 pay for people's hospitalisation. She would give out books at the local schools. She would pay for the local fiesta at the church. I mean, this is stuff that you know has been now done by drug traffickers throughout Mexico. But he was kind of the first guy uh, to do this. Uh, so I found him a fascinating character. The other reason I found him fascinating is he was like, in the words of the DEA, like a ghost. They never got even a photograph of the guy. Uh, and I managed to track down some photographs uh, and track down a fair amount of information about him. So I was, I was pretty excited to do that. Okay, very interesting. I'd like to take a quick pause from the discussion to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the Danzantes brand of mezcal. Unlike industrial tequila, which is made from agave cooked in giant steam ovens, 
Danzante's mezcal is handmade in the state of Oaxaca using fire-roasted agave that is crushed into a pulp by a large stone grinding wheel. This traditional production process imparts a complex, smoky, earthy flavor into Danzante's mezcal. Total, Mexico exported only 4.5 million liters of mezcal in 2020, a figure equal to just 1.6% of the amount of tequila the country exported during the same time period. Visitors and residents in Mexico City can sample Danzante's small batch mezcal at the Danzante's restaurant in the city's historic Coyoacan neighborhood. So I also wanted to ask you about something else. I know that for me, over the last 10 years, I've done a lot of field work in places like Michoacan, Chiapas, and Chihuahua and other states in Mexico. And I think that especially for everyone from foreign tourists to foreign executives and foreign investors, it's always incredibly important to study and understand the local dynamics in each place in Mexico because, um, you know, different states will have, you know, very different dynamics. But for academics and analysts, I think the, the biggest challenge is to really build from that local level analysis and identify some larger dynamics. And I'm wondering for you, what character in your book really exemplifies the larger dynamic related to Mexico's sometimes inscrutable and paradoxical involvement in the U.S.-led war on drugs? Uh, that's, that's a really good way to put it. I mean, it is, it is inscrutable and paradoxical, and it's, it's uh, particularly inscrutable to uh, the U.S. agents who go down and try to manipulate and shape uh, the Mexican war on drugs. I suppose in terms of the character who best exemplifies uh, this kind of paradoxical attitude, I think it's probably the uh, the Attorney General during the 1970s, who's a man called Oscar Flores Sanchez. Uh, now, on the one hand, Oscar Flores Sanchez is absolutely loved. He's adored by the Americans. He's a slick lawyer. He speaks uh, very good English. He's very cheery. He's very relaxed. Um, he's worked with the Americans back in the 1940s, uh, when the Mexicans and the Americans put together a campaign to get rid of foot and mouth disease, so they know him really well. Uh, he's been governor of Chihuahua, right on the border, and he's set up a bunch of kind of commercial deals with the Americans, so they really like him. And so when he's put in charge of uh, the Attorney General's office, basically the group that's in charge of prosecuting drug crime in the late 1970s, the Americans are really chuffed. And for about three or four years, he does their biddings, or apparently he does their biddings. He captures a bunch of major kingpins. He allows the Americans to come in and spray uh, the fields of um, opium poppies and marijuana um, with, um, with herbicides. Uh, he orders the military to go into the villages and capture the drug growers. Uh, so he's really a, a favorite uh, of the United States during this period. And he appears, at least on the surface, to be doing their bidding. However, what I found was that underneath what in actual fact he was doing and that many of his 
um, employees, many of his followers were doing, was effectively taking over what I call the drug protection rackets. Well, what does that mean? Effectively, he was shaking down drug traffickers for money. And he was using this money to build up the power of the Attorney General's office and its police force, the federal police. Uh, And we got dozens of, uh, or I found dozens of um, testimonies of both policemen and drug traffickers who said what was actually going on was I was slapped into a cell, uh, I was tortured for three or four uh, uh, days in horrible ways, including waterboarding, beating, semi-asphyxiation, really dreadful uh, forms of torture. And at the end of this, they said, either uh, we're going to put you in prison for the next 15 years, or you're going to pay us a regular payment for still running the drug trade. So what appeared to the Americans to be good drug war um, policies were in actual fact the beginnings of effectively a federal run protection racket. Um, so that, I suppose, the guy who came up with that, this this, uh, this guy, Oscar Flores Sanchez, was the, the guy who epitomised this the most, I suppose. But I suppose, in, in many ways, Oscar Flores Sanchez was a slick lawyer, uh, and he's difficult to kind of capture his character, but one of his underlings was a guy called Arturo El Negro Durazo, uh, who was head of the Mexico City Police, while Oscar Flores Sanchez was the Attorney General. Uh, and he kind of took this paradoxical attitude to its furthest conclusion. So on the one hand, he was shaking hands with American officials. He was clapping on the back. He was invited to um, he was invited to kind of uh, police conferences throughout the United States. At the same time, uh, he was uh, basically operating the beginnings of a massive cocaine transshipment. Um, business through Mexico City Airport. Um, so these people kind of played these, as you rightly say, kind of paradoxical roles, which the Americans never really got their head around. Okay. Um, so I know that you've, you've, you've looked at basically a century of drug war policies, and I'm wondering if at this point you could pick out one word to describe the war on drugs. Right, so you're asking an academic to uh, <laughs> to, to, re- to reduce a hundred years of history to one single word. I apologise. Um, I'll go with wrong-headed, um, but I suppose I could also say profitable and tragic at the same time. Okay, very interesting, and uh, kind of in the same. Um, if you want to play the same game here. Um, could you pick out just one word to describe Mexico's relationship with drug cartels? I'll go for two. Profitable and tragic. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I know that the playwright Eugene O'Neill once explained that there is no present or future. There's only the past happening again and again. And for me, it was just incredibly striking to see the same patterns repeat over and over again over the course of a century. And I'm wondering, have U.S. policymakers learned anything from the historical examples you discuss? Or 
Do you think that um, policymakers in Washington aren't really learning from their mistakes? I think uh, the mistake we make is assuming that it's the aim of any of those people in Washington to actually bring down the amount of drugs that go into the United States, to bring down the amount of overdoses, let alone bring any peace to Mexico. I don't think that's really their their aim, um, because what they're doing is actually, in fact, making all those things worse. Uh, what I think their aim is, is to extract money for their particular branch of the bureaucracy. And the DEA is actually genius at that. It's been losing a war for 50 years, right? It was created, well, 48 years, right? It's been in creation. It's lost that war. 100,000 people died of overdoses uh, last year. It has failed. And yet, the amount of money it gets from the government just keeps on going up. Um, so it's winning that particular battle, right? Um, so... Uh, I'm not sure that they necessarily keep repeating the same mistakes in their own mind and with their own aims, they're actually succeeding. They keep on getting funding. They keep on growing uh, the size of the bureaucracy and the amount of agents on the ground. Um, and it strikes me, I mean, you're absolutely right. So um, in the book, I talk about what happens in the 1980s uh, in, uh, in, in Mexico. Now, in the 1980s, very famously... Some drug traffickers murder a DEA agent called Kiki Camarena. And it becomes very clear uh, that the DEA had massively underestimated and not really understood what was going on in Mexico. And in actual fact, what was going on in Mexico is they were transporting around half the cocaine into the United States that was just starting to get really high on crack cocaine. Um, so it was a, a huge disaster, really, for the DEA. However, the DEA levers Kiki Camarena's death into a doubling of its budget and a doubling of its staff almost overnight, right? Uh, so it levers its own failure into getting way more money uh, and way more staff. And it sends these people, uh, this time with a huge amount of money, into Mexico... Um, and uh, it does loads and loads of seizures. Uh, it captures a load of high-profile drug uh, traffickers. Um, it uh, makes these big arrests. It takes down what it calls the Guadalajara cartel. It's not really a cartel, but anyway. Um, but in actual fact, by the end of the decade, after this vast amount of money thrown at the DEA and into Mexican anti-counter-narcotics uh, operations... The U.S. is taking, by 1990, taking 70% of the world's cocaine, and Mexico is trans-shipping 90% of that. So it's done absolutely nothing. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. It does keep repeating the same failures, but it also makes me think that it's not aiming to actually bring down the amount of drugs or bring down the amount of overdoses or care for the people who are addicted in the United States, let alone bring peace to Mexico. In actual fact, I think very deliberately, the DEA, particularly over the last 20 years, has very deliberately stoked the violence in Mexico. Because what, what, what it effectively does is it splits cartels against one another and then takes informants from one side of that cartel to take out the other. So for the DEA, 
Divisions are good. Violence is good. Distrust is good. Uh, I think it deliberately stokes it. It's, it's dealt with very, very uh, well um, in a recent article by Luis Chaparro in Business Insider. It's also dealt very well by um, uh, Annabel Hernandez in her recent book, uh, The Traitor, uh, which speaks very clearly about how the DEA deliberately stoked divisions in the Sinaloa cartel and uh, in order to take out opposition uh, cartel kingpins and hence mm-hmm. get more funding. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think we're, we're thinking that the DEA and, and anti-drugs groups in, in, uh, in the United States have, have noble aims, because I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Okay. So something that's very interesting to me is that, you know, we talk about this history over the last 50 years, over the last 100 years, um, but Mexico's current president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, promises that his administration represents a real break from the recent decades of corruption and criminal activity that have hampered past presidents in Mexico. Um, you know, most famously his slogan being that he, he wants to bring hugs and not bullets and address criminal activity through social programs and jobs rather than, um, you know, fighting drug trafficking organizations. But at the same time, a lot of analysts are pointing out that he's giving a lot of power to the military. And so I'm wondering if Overall, do you see Lopez Obrador's government as representing a clear change from past policies? Or do you think he's mostly just repackaging old strategies under new names? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think instinctively he's trying to do something at least different from his two predecessors. Uh, and I think these, these are... Um, two or three things he's doing differently. One, I think it's un- it's very, very clear he is not following the kingpin strategy. Uh, and I think that's clear from how few kingpins have actually been arrested or from the so-called Culiacanazo uh, in 2019 when the military did arrest Chapo's son, uh, who was a fairly high-profile uh, drug target, certainly for the, uh, for the Americans. Um this uh, Chapo's son threatened to turn Culiacan into a charnel house and as a result AMLO let him go. So he's clearly not taking down kingpins. He is also making a big play of offering uh, social and uh, economic opportunities to youngsters. Now I think the problem with this policy is it's probably correct that this is uh, the way to bring down levels of violence, uh, particularly in kind of poor border cities. However, A, this is a very long-term policy that you can't do overnight, and two, he's been rather hampered by the Mexican economy going down um, going down the chute over the first two years of his rule and then COVID hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and both these things have rather undermined the kind of social spending. The third thing, as you rightly say, is he's put um, a lot of money and a lot of uh, prestige and a lot of uh, emphasis and focus on the military. Now, this is somewhat surprising because when he came to power, he was fairly negative about the military. Um, he said that he would send the, the, the soldiers back to the barracks. Um, but he's become increasingly reliant on the military, not simply 
for uh, anti-narcotics policies, but also for other kind of policies that he's putting in place, including tracking down Central American migrants and building large infrastructure projects. Um, so I, I mean, I think that this is uh, again somewhat hampering his ability to um, uh, to kind of bring down levels of violence because it's the one thing that's been fairly well proven. Uh, by political scientists and sociologists studying the last 20 years of Mexico. It's when you send in the military, murders, violence tend to go up. Um, so again, that, that's not helping. The other problem he has is I think a lot of the violence is very, very different uh, in its dynamics to what it was 15 or so years ago. 15 or so years ago, um, different cartels or organized crime groups were fighting over control of trafficking routes, right? Who gets to basically shake down drug traffickers or drug smugglers when they take uh, cocaine over the bridge from Ciudad Juarez to El Paso, right? That was the fight. Now they're fighting over a whole gamut uh, of criminal activities uh, from... Uh, illegal logging, illegal mining, human trafficking. I mean, pretty much every criminal activity and a load of non-criminal activities. Uh, so I was speaking recently to a guy who lives down on the, um, the Costa Grande in Guerrero. Now, the Costa Grande in Guerrero is a quite an interesting example. There, the bottom has fallen out of the opium market. So effectively, you're a peasant, you're growing opium poppies, you can't sell them because... Americans are now taking fentanyl. So what have organized crime groups done? Well, basically, they're now fighting over who runs the livestock business, the avocado business, um, the illegal logging and illegal mining business, and also who gets to distribute the government's aid package, which is something called Sembrando Vida. So all these criminal groups have turned to really other forms of this of shaking down licit activities. And this is something that, as far as I can make out, AMLO does not have a solution to. Um, so it's possible that his solutions are 15 years too late. If they were brought in in 2005, 2006 by Calderon's government, they might have worked. Now Mexico has changed. And I'm not sure that you can simply do deals with the big capos, do deals with the um, uh, uh, the kind of major uh, leaders of the so-called cartels and bring peace to Mexico. I, I just don't think that's going to work. I mean, what's going on in Guerrero is just these tiny little, really, really small warlords with 20, 30, 40, 50 men under them, but very, very well armed, shaking down tiny villages. They've displaced about, they now think, somewhere around 30,000 villagers just from the Costa Grande. I mean, there aren't that many people there, uh, mm. but these small armed gangs have just kicked them out because they want to take over livestock or logging or mining or whatever. So that to me is one of the most interesting things. Um, I know that over the last five years, 130,000 people have been killed in Mexico. And just during the first two years of Lopez Obrador's administration, 73,000 people were killed. Mm. Um, 
which means that Mexico right now is actually uh, a great deal more violent than it was during the worst years of Felipe Calderon's war on drugs or war on the drug cartels. Um, so in some ways the rhetoric has changed, but uh, the violence that people are experiencing is is worse now than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, when it comes to the Lopez Obrador Biden relationship, um, where do you where do you see cooperation on security issues or the war on drugs fitting within the broader relationship? Um, have security issues in any way taken a back seat to economic or immigration related issues? Uh, very in, in very short terms, I think yes. So I think that when Biden was about to come to power uh, and the DEA arrested a major uh, Mexican military general, a guy called Cienfuegos uh, in Los Angeles, this was the DEA's play to push the issue of drugs and drug trafficking to the top of Biden's agenda. But I think that a mixture of COVID... Uh, and the economic problems caused by COVID, plus the continuing quote-unquote problem of migration have put um, the drugs issue on a back burner. Um, now, I, and I think this is... Uh, so, so clearly during the Trump presidency, um, AMLO was allowed to run his own drug policy as long as he chased down Central American migrants. And I think a lot of us thought that when Biden came to power, this deal would no longer be in place. But it seems to have been maintained uh, because Central American migration appears to be such a a kind of political embarrassment for Biden. Um, uh, So, so, yeah, as I say, I I don't think the issues of drugs um, are that key to their relationship. It's very surprising to me because I thought that the recent figures out on overdoses would be genuinely shocking to the Americans. I mean, 100,000... I remember in 2016, about 70,000 people died um, of fentanyl, heroin uh, overdoses. Um, This year, about last year, 100,000 people died. And yet it barely made a ripple in the media. Now, the vast majority of that fentanyl is coming through Mexico, uh, and yet this does not seem to have pushed drugs to the top of the agenda yet. Okay. So in terms of where drugs fit within the larger panorama in in Mexico, I have some facts that I'd like to share. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that in 2020, migrants in the U.S. sent remittances back to Mexico that were worth $41 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we go back to 2019, you know, before the pandemic, we know that foreign tourism generated $24.5 billion for Mexico. Um, and in 2020, Mexico sent out automotive exports worth $40 billion. Um, now, on the other hand, when it comes to understanding the economics of drug cartels, good Good estimates are hard to come by. These organizations are not publishing annual financial reports. Um, But we have some pretty good estimates that drug smuggling could be generating somewhere between 10 and $30 billion a year. Um, But if we put that in perspective, $10 billion is less than 1% of Mexico's annual GDP. 
and it's not even one-tenth of what Mexico earns from tourism, remittances, and auto exports put together. Um, so this is, you know, what I want to put into perspective. If we look at just the dollar value, the what the drug trade brings to Mexico is not in any way significantly higher than what Mexico gets from auto exports, tourism, or migrant remittances. Um, but at the same time, across the globe, there's uh, a cultural obsession with Mexico's narcos. And I'm wondering, do you think that that's justified? Um, do organized crime and violent crime really play such a huge role in everyday life in Mexico? Right, so I think there are two questions here, aren't there? I mean, so um, I think the first question is, are we overly obsessed by the role of drug trafficking to the American Mexican economy and to violence in Mexico and to polit politics in Mexico? And I would say, absolutely we are. Um, and I think that, uh, as you absolutely rightly say, um, there is a tendency, particular, uh, particularly among the US authorities and particularly among the DEA, to massively, vastly over-exaggerate the value of the drug business because then they get more paid more money, right? So I think you're absolutely right, and then their, their role appears more important. Um, so, uh, and the figures that you gave, which are, I think, between 10 and 30 billion, uh, are mostly from, mostly from the Rand Institute, which does a fairly good, honest job at bringing down and giving much more realistic estimates of how much uh, the drug uh, business is worth. The second thing to say then is, um, but do we over-exaggerate uh, the role of violence and organized crime uh, in everyday Mexican life? Um, I think that's really difficult to, I mean, clearly for I deal a lot with refugees who are fleeing from areas of Mexico pursued by organized criminals who often call themselves cartels, who have extorted them, kidnapped them, shaken them down. Uh, and there are, I think there are around 90,000 Mexicans uh, claiming asylum or asking for refugee status in the United States in 2018. So clearly for 90,000 people, uh, it's a fairly big thing. Uh, and around, I think it's around 30% of Mexicans experience, and this is a very kind of uh, some sort of form of crime uh, during any uh, given year. Um, so and this is way more than in most, most or certainly European countries uh, and in most of the United States. Well, not all the United States, it should be said, not all the, the cities of uh, the United States. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think that organized crime and, 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 and violence do play a, a fairly big role uh, in the life of not simply people involved in organized crime. I think this is what's so, so shocking. It's, you know, organized criminals are now shaking down shopkeepers and shaking down avocado fam farmers and shaking down truck drivers right so 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 now that and and kidnapping these kind of um basically lower middle class people uh, who have a tiny bit of disposable cash which organized criminals are trying to get hold of uh so yes narcos and drugs is over emphasized but i don't think necessarily organized crime uh and violence necessarily is mm -hmm. 
I mean, yeah. you know, you know, you know the statistics, right? I mean, I can't remember what it is now, it's, but it's somewhere around 20 of the 50 most murderous cities in the world are in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think maybe it's important to separate the, the macroeconomic importance of um, drug smuggling money flows from the culture of fear of violence that definitely exists at a local mm-hmm. level in Mexico. And I think that, um, you know, in states all over Mexico, if you talk to local business owners, the fear of violence is absolutely part of the daily calculus um, of the decisions that they're making. And in some places, you know, in, in my book, I wrote about the avocado industry in Michoacan. And that's a state where armed groups have, you know, just such an important presence in the state that there's no way that a billion-dollar avocado industry can be um, operating without fully dealing with that violence on a daily basis, and you know, figuring out how to protect themselves, how to build local police forces that can protect them, and you know, besi- behind the scenes, how to negotiate with the state and how to negotiate with local armed groups to find a way to operate in that area. Um, I also know um, two other examples. I, I talked to a family working to build a, a coffee business. And every time they tried to do a simple task, such as you know dropping off coffee at a local roaster, they would be driving back home and they'd be worried that they would be attacked by local gunmen. Um, and over the course of the time that I spoke with them and worked with them over the years that I was working on my book, they ended up losing their farm to gunmen who successfully intimidated them and took over their coffee farm. And uh, I think about that and I think about a taco stand chef uh, that I met in Tijuana and he explained something very important to me. He said, um, in terms of contact with the government, um, that he mostly experiences government represent government representatives and inspectors coming by, but not to collect taxes or to um, demand fees for official inspections. All they wanted was bribes. So he said, it's really the worst of the worst of all worlds because business owners are paying taxes. They're just paying taxes in the form of extortion payments or bribes and they don't get any public services in exchange for them. So I know that uh, that's true anecdotally, but it's also true when we look at the, at the national level statistics. We know that Mexico collects just 16% of its GDP in taxes. Yeah. And that's about half as much as the OECD average, and it's mm-hmm. about one third as much. Um, as the Nordic economies that President Lopez Obrador often says he wants to emulate in terms of healthcare and social services. Um, so maybe when we think about this, uh, this kind of precarious position, the precarious financial position in which the Mexican government finds itself, we can ask a bigger question that I know over the years people have always asked about or wanted to understand, and that's, Do you think that fundamentally Mexico is a narco state or is it more accurate to think of it as a country with limited government capacity where the state simply struggles to establish a strong presence in many parts of the country? That's a really good question and and really fascinating examples. I mean, I have to say um, those examples really, really, 
ring true. But I would say one thing is, is you termed, and I, I'm sure this uh, Tijuana taco salesman termed them bribes, but effectively what the police are doing is coming along and demanding uh, and, and demanding basically tax for protection. They're saying, give me, you know, 10% of your taco rep profits and we'll protect you from the, you know, well, from another police force or from the, uh, you know, the local thieves or from the local cartel. Um, so this is, so not only are the cartels shaking down uh, individual business owners, um, also, the police are trying to get a cut of individual business owners. So in terms of whether it's a, a narco state or just a state with lacking capacity, I would say it's the latter. Uh, and in actual fact, myself and an um, IR specialist, a guy called Tom Long, who's here in Warwick with me, are working currently on this article where we're doing actually kind of what you were talking about. We're analysing... Uh, Mexico's um, relationship to organised crime in relation to its tax capacity, and what we what we effectively think is you've almost got two states running in parallel, right? You've got the orthodox state which charges taxes to businessmen and broadly upholds the rule of law, right? And that state is pretty weak, as I think we know, right? But there is another state. And that is represented by policemen, uh, by the military, and that is also extracting its own taxes um, to protect people from themselves and from organised crime. Um, so I think there are all, as I say, almost kind of two states working in parallel, and they're kind of connected. Because effectively, the policemen are allowed to do this. They're allowed to go to the taco guy and shake him down for money because they have complete impunity. Because the government basically lets them get get away with this kind of stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a very kind of strange shape of state in many ways. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's not a, a, a kind of orthodox Western government. Uh, democracy it's 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 very different from that mm -hmm. yeah definitely and um in just in, in terms of you know understanding what's going on in mexico i think we need to talk to a lot of people to hear different perspectives you know there's macroeconomists who can explain one issue about you know the importance of economic informality in mexico mm -hmm. you know 99 percent of all the businesses in mexico are not um, you know, properly constituted, formally run businesses that pay taxes and pay mm -hmm. payroll taxes on all of their employees. So in general, there's this situation where um, there's this, everything is in flux and business owners all over the country are constantly working to negotiate the relationship that they have with, um, you know, formal and informal power brokers in the areas where they're operating. Um, and, you know, we have different people studying it and analyzing it. You know, you have local Mexican journalists and photographers who are documenting what's happening at the local level. And then you have, you know, foreign political scientists, historians and economists um, who are studying the pictures, you know, the picture, the picture on the ground, but from, a, you know, from a different perspective, more the, the flyover perspective. Mm. Um, and I know that it sounds like 
from what you said with this current project, you didn't want to do an academic book, but you also didn't want to do kind of like a pop biography of a particular cartel leader. Um, and I'm wondering, just in terms of the writing process, what is it that makes this book different from some of your previous projects? I, I realized having inundated you with my political science article in the answer before, um, people are not going to come away with this believing that I wrote this entertaining kind of narco-noir history. Uh, but that was kind of my, my intention. My intention was to, was to tell a story of what is going on in Mexico in a way that was broadly understandable uh, for the vast kind of majority of the reading public. Um, so as a result, I did try and walk this tightrope between explaining what was going on, um, but at the same time making it relatively entertaining and including these stories and these characters, uh, which I hope will make people kind of uh, pay attention to what's going on. And I think a lot of the, I think one of the problems with what the way we've been analysing it over the last, and we started this conversation with, you know, what's wrong with just you know, obsessing over the kingpins and the cartels. Um, and, the, uh, you know, my, my problem with that is we have, we have mistaken propaganda for proper analysis. But the proper analysis is basically unreadable for the vast majority uh, of, of Americans or Mexicans. Um, and so I tried to make this, as I say, understandable to, to your average reader. I mean, the the first person that I sent every chapter to was my cousin, uh, who knows nothing about Mexico and hasn't visited there, and my dad, who's uh, uh, a retired urban planner. Um, so neither of them knew anything about Mexico, but what they do know is they like a good story. Um, so that's the, that's how I sent it to them first. Having said all that, the book itself is based on an enormous amounts of research that I did. Um, so in that way, it's not very different from what I've done beforehand. Uh, and I spent, well, I was lucky enough to have a kind of team, uh, a team of people. And we spent um, years looking into this kind of stuff, interviewing people, declassifying documents, tracking down private archives. It was a massive slog to find this kind of stuff out. Definitely. Well, I know for me, I, I really enjoyed reading your book and the way that I read it was different, I think, than, than the way I might read some other books that I, I felt like I wanted to read one chapter every day, that each chapter for me was like a great standalone, you know, easy to digest story and it would leave me with something to think about for the day. Um, but I didn't want to binge read it and, you know, and, and kind of skim over, you know, the stories of five individuals. I, I found it to be incredibly enjoyable just to read, you know, read one chapter every day and, you know, find something new out about, you know, the history of Chinese narcos in, in, in Mexico in the, you know, in the 1920s was for me a fascinating thing to, to learn about. And okay. I'm wondering if there's... Um, Maybe if you can sum up, if there's one thing that you want readers to take away from your book, what would that be? It's a, probably a fact that I come up with at the beginning of the book, which is your average Mexican can make the, uh, the he can make the Mexican average wage by selling what uh, by selling the product from a single marijuana plant on the U.S. market. 
So you want to know why there's a, a drug trade in Mexico? It's that. It's basically this huge US demand uh, and this massive Mexican poverty. Um, so I think that's the kind of overarching, if somewhat obvious, message from the book. Sure. Well, that makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, it's like there's a big power structures in play and then there are individual lives um, and people figure out how to how to live within those structures. And that's what you explain in the book. I'd like to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores. Visitors and residents in Mexico City and in Guadalajara can stop by one of El Deposito's locations and try a wide selection of independently owned beers, including Minerva, Loba, and Calavera. Overall, Craft beer still only accounts for less than 1% of Mexico's beer market, but many of the brands at El Deposito are expanding production and carving out a niche for themselves within Mexico. So for craft beer aficionados, the best place in Mexico to sample the country's celebrated cervezas artesanales is El Deposito. And I'd really like to close out with just a couple of quick questions, um, sure. you know, some fun, some fun questions. I, I just wanted to ask you, in in terms of your time that you've spent in Mexico, what's the favorite cantina? My favorite cantina. Um, so my favorite cantina, and I've I've told the story before, but my favorite cantina is a cantina that was long uh, was kind of famous among Brits. It's called La Farola. It was in Oaxaca. Uh, it was. Uh, drunk in by D.H. Lawrence when he went to Oaxaca. It was drunk in by Malcolm Lowry when he got wasted in Oaxaca. Um, and uh, I drunk in there for most of my PhD. Uh, and then very sadly up to 2013 when the Zetas came and uh, shot the owner of the bar. So it has now been closed down very sadly for eight years. Uh, unfortunately, my favorite one is closed. Okay, so maybe on a more wholesome note then, what's your current uh, favorite Mexican food or dish? We're doing a lot of fish tacos at the moment. Fish tacos and then if I'm being particularly uh, 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 creative, then a bit of ceviche as well to go with that. Okay, great. And uh, what about your favorite Mexican beer? Well, that's quite difficult. I, you know, uh, I mean, normally, frankly, I'm a Negro Modelo man, but I am quite basic. Okay, Negro Modelo. And then lastly, what's your favorite sight or sound in Mexico City? You know, that's a really, it's a really good question. And it, it brought me this kind of Proustian rush as all this kind of sights and sounds of Mexico City come back. And I think it's when you work, walk out in the morning out of your apartment building or whatever, and you immediately hear the cries of the kind of, uh, uh, the street seller who's got tamales, tamales. And I think that will live with me forever. Nice. Well, it's one of many, one of many, uh, one of many sights and sounds that people can experience in Mexico City. And I know that, um, you know, every, everybody probably has a different one that stands out. Um, yeah. But so listen, Ben, you know, I just want to say, you know, thanks so much for joining us and for telling us about your book. Again, I want to just say how much I, I enjoyed reading it. And um, and yeah, thanks again for joining us. Cheers, Nate. Uh, really appreciate it. That was, like, 
that was really enjoyable. Thank you. The Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the Distrito Fijo Cycling Club in Mexico City. Earlier in today's episode, we mentioned that tourists need to understand the local dynamics in the places in Mexico they want to visit. And one of the best ways to explore Mexico is on two wheels. So to meet local cyclists, have an espresso or a meal, or join in on an early morning group ride, stop by Distrito Fijo's clubhouse and cycling store in the trendy Colonia Juarez neighborhood in Mexico City. Distrito Fijo can also help residents and visitors organize multi-day road and gravel cycling vacations in Oaxaca, Chiapas, Jalisco, and other states in Mexico. For listeners, thanks again for tuning in to the Modern Mexico Podcast. Ben Smith's book, The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade, is available on Amazon or at your local bookstore. The next episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.